Am I muted? No. First, it's important to uh, my doctors and my caregivers that, to show you that I'm wearing my brace, okay? I, Dr. Palmer looked at me and he goes, wait! And I had to show him that I was wearing this. But it's more important that I show it to you so that you know that I didn't get any fatter. <laughs> that I'm wearing this thing. And so I, you know, I didn't gain weight. So that's, that's more important uh, to me that you know that, all right? So... Um, I remember this prayer from a couple of weeks ago from our brand new born-again man-god, this Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, his ways just, and he's able to humble those who walk in pride. So I begin today not just as a review, but to remind us that this born-again ruler, because of what we're about to see today, because we need to compare this uh, prayer that we will see today to this drunken boast of this next king that we'll meet in our next chapter, Daniel 5, Belshazzar. I think these words haunted Belshazzar whenever he thought of the might of Nebuchadnezzar brought low in his mind by this Hebrew God he now calls the king of heaven, he spits in disgust. Disgust that barely disguises his fear. In chapter five, the destinies of both of these kings will come together and they'll come together for us. So to introduce you to Belshazzar is a little difficult. Who is he, who was he? Nebuchadnezzar, we know, died in 562 BCE. According to Babylonian Chronicles, <clears throat> he lived to be 104. So that's a long reign from somebody who took control when he probably was around 22 or 23. By then, Belshazzar was already head of the Babylonian army. Daniel 5 takes place in about 539 BCE, the night before, according to the narrative, the actual night before the capture of Babylon by Cyrus. Nabonidus is king at this time, and one problem we used to have with history was that history never mentioned Belshazzar. The Bible was the only book that ever mentioned him. Daniel will actually call Belshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar Belshazzar's father in verses 2, 11, 13, 18, and 22. But we know from history that Nebuchadnezzar had no son named Belshazzar. In 1861, a cuneiform tablet that was called the Prayer of Nabonidus is found by an archaeologist named Talbot. In it, he asked God to bless his son, Belshazzar. Again, Nabonidus, the uh, current king. This prayer was also found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1945. So apparently, Belshazzar was ruling Babylon in absence of his father, who had moved to the oasis city of Tema. And that seems to be a common practice with Babylonian kings. They get to a certain age, they like the way the government is ruling, they go into semi-retirement and they go over to places where they have oases built. They get to live a spa life. While they put their children, who are younger and stronger and need to deal with the day-to-day -day problems, put them in charge. 
So it's quite possible that Nabonidus had already done this. Belshazzar was ruling in Babylon while Nabonidus was co-ruling. So it, it's, it's a uh, co-emptorship, if, if, if you will. Okay. So we know that Belshazzar is the last Babylonian king. We know the Medes will sack Babylon by the end of the chapter. So why does Daniel call him Nebuchadnezzar's son? Well, if you think about it, the Bible does it in a lot of places. Son of David. Jesus uh, was called the son of David, but we know that that was a messianic term. He wasn't one of David's sons, was he? But the term applies to him. In, uh, in 2 Kings, um, it is done with Omri and Jehu. That's what history tells us of Belshazzar. So what does Daniel tell us? Belshazzar remembers his heritage, I believe, very well. He's probably reminded of it all his life. Every time he comes to rule and he wants to rule the way he wants to, he's reminded of this prayer. He's reminded that the great, mighty Nebuchadnezzar actually suffered this humiliating experience and all he came out of it was was that he now worships this puny Hebrew God. Nabonidus is the last was the last of the priests of Babylon, and Nabonidus probably spent his entire rule trying to restore the ancient rites and sacred sites that Nebuchadnezzar had spent his life as a born-again believer in God getting rid of. Belshazzar remembers well his grandfather, and he shows his contempt, and you'll see it immediately from the beginning of chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar commanded that they bring in the vessels of gold and silver that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. What do you think Nebuchadnezzar did with these after he began to worship the Hebrew God? Belshazzar orders them be brought in from wherever they may have been put to be revered by Nebuchadnezzar now, has them brought in, and now they're drinking from them. They are doing something they prescribe they will do with these formerly Hebrew worship objects. What the Hebrew God said was temporal and soon fade away, Belshazzar now makes into gods and worships them himself. A lot of people ask me at times, do we think that we'll ever find the ancient furniture, say, of the temple? Would we ever find the Ark of the Covenant? I would be shocked if we ever did because one of the reasons why I don't think we find any of that stuff is because what would we immediately begin to do with it? We'd begin to worship it. So Belshazzar now makes these cups into his own idols. He publicly now has emancipated himself from his grandfather. I do not stand with my grandfather. My grandfather revered the God that these objects were used to worship. I now defile them openly. Whenever he thinks of his grandfather, that God is always behind him, and he resents this God. Belshazzar is truly disturbed by him. 
Like I said, I think that he has nothing but contempt for these people and their God, but also there's this fear. There's this fear because he saw what it did to his grandfather, and I think that he has feared this all his life. Belshazzar's paranoid. According to Andre Lecoq in his book of Daniel, on uh, his book that he wrote on the book of Daniel, he deals with it. He says Belshazzar deals with it the way most do. He will attempt to destroy a truth that torments him by degrading what frightens him. That's where one of the worst characteristics of human behavior come from, is that we tend then to deride that which frightens us. Our very worst uh, ways of treating each other come because for some reason we're afraid. He hopes to desecrate the sacred to prove that it was never sacred in the first place. If you all think that my grandfather had it right, well, look at these worship objects. Look at these objects from that Hebrew God. He's not even strong enough to do anything about it. I'm here openly doing what I want to do. He profanes these objects. And most often, God meets these challenges with what? With silence. It must have been confusing at the least. It must have infuriated some. Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus, Cornelius, Pompey, all leaders who openly defined the living God, the living Hebrew God, and walked right into the temple and defiled that which could not be defiled. And they walked in and they walked out. And God said what? Nothing. So God then is gonna do something different though with Belshazzar. Wonder why this, this um, rather uh, insignificant Babylonian king, the very last one, the one that the entire downfall of Babylon will be blamed on, God decides actually now to speak up. He doesn't speak up to any others who defile his temple or do any of those things, but this one he's going to speak up to. And we're told what happens. They brought in the vessels of gold and silver that had been taken out of the temple. They drank the wine. They praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And suddenly what? The fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that he had done the writing. So you look back, like I said, he's going to make idols out of them himself. He's gonna give you a new reason to worship him. Why? Because I can take these Hebrew worship objects and they're made of stone and they're made of wood and they're made of metal and I'm actually then able to repurpose them. I'll give you a new reason to worship me. At least I've conquered this puny little Hebrew God. And as I pointed out before, all these other leaders openly challenged God too, and they were met with silence. This guy, though, does it, and what happens? God shows up. And all he sees is the back of his what? The back of his hand. What does that remind you of? Remind you of Moses. Moses never saw God's face. He only saw what? 
He only saw the back of his hand. In other words, what happens to you now when you are in the presence of God and you see whatever in, in the way that God has chose to reveal himself to you, whether he has revealed his face or whether he has revealed his back, whether he's revealed the palm of his hand or the back of his hand, it's now up to us how we're going to react. We have a decision to make now. Belshazzar has a decision to make. Because God is taking on his defiance and he's now doing it openly. So this hand appears, writes a message on the wall of the palace. The details we're given are purposeful. There is a purpose for doing this. It's a plaster or a whitewashed wall, if you will. So in other words, there's something divine happening because I could write all day long with my finger and unless it's dirty enough, it's not gonna show up on this drywall here. But something has happened. There's something, there's a power going on. And I think that the reason that, um, that it's told in such detail is because it can't be missed. It's not something that Belshazzar sees in a dream as with his grandfather. It's actually happening. And the reason why Daniel can describe it is because it's happening in front of who? It's happening in front of everybody. There's no way to miss this. So how does he react in seeing just the back of God's hand? The king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him. His hip joints went slack and his knees began what? Knocking together. It's almost a caricature or a cartoon of what we do when we're afraid. It gets his attention, didn't it? It got his attention. And, and when it says his hip joints went slack, we know that that's a Hebrew euphemism as that the muscles around the hip joints all went slack, including some muscles about right here. So guess what else he probably lost control of? So now he's even more terrified. Belshazzar's getting a little bit of deja vu all over again though, isn't he? Because he's going to have to do something. Something that his grandfather used to have to do. He's going to have to send for him. He's going to have to send for that guy. No. I've avoided my entire reign to avoid that guy and his God. I won't do it. I won't do it. So he's just going to put up with this agony. And then all of a sudden, there's interjected a voice that we haven't met before. And we're not 100% sure why she is there, but it says that um, after all this, it says the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be what? Face be pale. As soon as that voice echoes through the chamber, Belshazzar goes, oh no, not her. Anybody but her. says she's the queen. Is she? No. Belshazzar's wife is already at the party, drinking with everybody else. Said his wife was there, his servants, and his concubines. That's pretty bold. You know, it's pretty bold to have your concubines in with your wife, but there they are, okay? So it isn't the queen. Uh, It's not his, the queen is not his wife. And besides, she never would have entered unless she'd been asked for, right? 
Queen Vashti learned that the hard way. Esther almost learns it the hard way a little later. So who do you think this is? What woman would have such pleasure in the court? There's something about this role, I don't know why, okay? But we see it several times in the Bible. First Kings 15, 13, it speaks of Asa who is going through. Asa is one of those kings that brought about reform in, in Judah. He's going through and he's tearing down all the idols and everything else. And it says in verse 13, it says, he also removed his mother, Meacha, from being queen mother because she made an abominable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image and burned it at the Wadi Kidron. The queen what? The queen mother. In 2 Kings 11, when Athaliah, Ahaziah's mother, saw that her son was dead, she set about to destroy all the royal family. They still have power. It doesn't matter what happened to their, to their children. There's something that the queen mother has. Jeremiah 13, 18 in a prophecy says, say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. And we see these ladies hanging around long after their sons, the kings, have been taken care of. So this is the queen mother. We assume that it's Nebuchadnezzar's wife. She now represents everything Belshazzar is trying so desperately to avoid. The memory of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's God, and especially Nebuchadnezzar's chief counselor, the one he will not send for, this lady shows up and reminds everybody of everything that he wants them to forget. And by the way, she does not help. Listen to the language that she uses. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians and the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners. <laughs> she knows exactly who she's talking to, doesn't she? She stabs him and then keeps going. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Two times with the same statement, she reminds him, in the days of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, as I said, she really knows how to turn the screws, doesn't she? She digs deep into his memories, forces him to come face to face with Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, Nebuchadnezzar's God, and to eventually have to come face to face with who? With Daniel. Because he's just waiting in the wings. And now that she's called him out publicly, he doesn't have any excuse anymore, does he? Okay, he's king. He has to figure out what's going on here. He's got to prove to all of his guests. He's got to prove to the nation that he's on top of this. 
He really doesn't want to know what's going on here. He doesn't want to know what those words mean. I don't want to know it at all, but he can't tell this crowd that his grandmother-in-law knew it and forces him now to confront it. So he does the one thing that he, that he just can't do. Daniel was brought before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah whom my father the king brought from Judah? His defiance is amazing though, isn't it? He's been frightened enough to be able to lose control of just about everything in front of this entire crowd. But when Daniel shows up, he straightens up his back, he looks at him and he goes, are you the guy, you? Are you him? Doesn't use his Babylonian name, by the way. Why? Well, I pointed out to you that Daniel really wasn't named Belteshazzar by Nebuchadnezzar. He was actually named Belshazzar by Nebuchadnezzar, which means literally Bel is my God, Bel being the main Babylonian deity. But remember what Daniel did. He threw in one syllable that made that name meaningless, remember? So he doesn't call him that. Belshazzar can't call him the name that his grandfather actually named him because it's his name too. He pretends he doesn't know him. Pretends he doesn't remember where he came from. You think he knows very well who he is? Oh, I do. He makes a statement too. Are you the guy that used to be in exile that my father actually brought here? Reminding Daniel where he came from. Who do you think you are? He has no respect for him whatsoever. Says this too, and to me this is the tone about this now. I've heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you. Illumination and insight, extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. He leaves out the adjective holy though, which is what she used when she described Daniel. He repeats the queen's description, but again, he begins then to manipulate the facts. He omits and recalls only what will best serve his argument. None of us have ever been guilty of that, have we? It doesn't stand in for intelligence, by the way. It only goes proof further of his ignorance and continuing to want to have this heart of stone. He goes on saying, now, Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you'll be clothed with purple, wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as third ruler of the kingdom. He now makes it sound like this was his idea. And I'm gonna take control of this situation. I'm gonna do it by rewarding you if you can give me the interpretation. I don't know about you, but I've always detected a note of bribery here. He's gonna bribe him. And he thinks that it's gonna work. 
Daniel, don't do what you did with my grandfather. Twist it a little bit. Lie a little bit, and I'll make it worth your while. You know, what's funny is that he's been third in command in Babylon ever since Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar thinks that he can give him anything more that he wants. He's staying in power. He's staying in control. I'm going to stay in power. I'm going to stay in control. Reminds you of somebody, doesn't it? Reminds you of Nebuchadnezzar. Then Daniel answered, said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I'll read the inscription to the king. I'll make the interpretation known to him. Startling, isn't it? Keep your stuff. I don't want your stuff. And and almost there's a hint of, I'll give you the interpretation because I already know what it means and I'll be happy to give you this interpretation. It's almost saying that your stuff isn't going to be worth anything in about an hour anyway. So in chapter 18 to 21, before he gives the interpretation, what's amazing is that Daniel then retells Nebuchadnezzar's story. If there's one thing that Belshazzar does not want to hear about right now, it's what? It's his grandfather's conversion. But Daniel retells it word for word. Everything that we studied last week and we looked uh, two weeks ago, we looked at that story. It's the story of absolute human power meeting God. What happens when the most powerful human on the planet living meets the living God? We know what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. What's going to happen now? The human will rely on strength and wealth and might. Belshazzar's already proven that that's his strategy. Relying on his own wealth, his own strength, and his own might. I'll either make you do it or I will bribe you to do it. But while the human human relies on all of that, and then again, too, is always remembered that this underlying tone that we have with the book of Daniel is this uh, ways to be able to worship a true God and a false God. Remember, we've looked at the rules of worshiping um, uh, that Babylon gives us, and we look at the rules of worshiping that Jerusalem gives us. Nebuchadnezzar was able to get you to worship him as a God. How? How? By making you do it. By forcing you to do it. That's the Babylonian way. And by the way, now, whenever Babylon is mentioned in prophecy, especially by the time you get to Revelation, that is the beast's way to get you to worship. Fear, force, coercion. And the whole world wandered after the beast. Why? Because if you didn't worship the beast, he would find a way to unalive you. but to worship in the church of the lamb that was slain. That's a whole nother story. Two different gods, two different forms of worship. Two churches. So the human way, the Babylonian way, absolute power. Absolute power used over people. God's way, though, the Jerusalem way, the church of the lamb that was slain, with him, it's simply, what does he do with the kingdom? He 
He simply gives it to you. And you think sometimes, you think, uh, can human kings do that? No, no, human kings can't do that. Well, why not? Well, then I wouldn't be in power anymore. There you go. So I think that Daniel actually is more interested in the fact that the inscription is here rather than what it says. Because I think he knows somewhere deep down in his heart that whatever the inscription says, it's going to do nothing for Belshazzar. But the fact that God has shown up to do this, I think that's what concerns uh, Daniel more. The presence of God, to be able to give the presence of God. Daniel was still able to give the presence of God to Nebuchadnezzar even after everything that Nebuchadnezzar had done for him. And when the love and the respect of Daniel uh, was made manifest in those years and when Nebuchadnezzar went through what he went through, look what happened when he comes back. The ability to be able to give your enemy the love of God. Hmm. I think that that would be the fruit of anybody looking to worship the living God to be able to become more like him. So he turns the story to him. Daniel does. He turns the story then in in, in, uh, 22 when describing, again, describing the... Gilbert, can you get me back here? I didn't... There we go. Thanks. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not what? You've not humbled yourself even though you what? You knew all this. You knew everything that I've told you. You have all the evidence that you need. Your grandfather was living proof and you still haven't what? You still haven't humbled your heart. But you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. They've brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone which do not see, hear or understand but the God in whose hand are your life, breath and all your ways you've not yet glorified. the God who holds in his hand your very breath and all your ways. Anytime that you see breath and hand together, what are you to think of? Creation, that's right. The presence of God shows up in the spirit and the spirit of God moved across the waters. And when it got to the end of the sixth day, the spirit then inhabits the hands. He gets down off his throne and with his very hands gets down into the dust of the ground and forms Adam with his hand and then breathes into him the breath of life. That's really something if you think about it. It's really something at a moment like this in open defiance where Belshazzar has done everything he has to openly defy God. He mocks him. He, he, he yells at him. He, 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 he's drinking uh, from, his, from his objects. He's drunk in, in a drunken rage about all of this. He is absolutely openly defying. And, Bel, and Daniel's uh, tactic, if you will, is to remind him that he is a created child of the living God. 
Is it something you'd be able to do? See, Daniel knows something. Daniel sees all of this. He understands. He, he figures something must be up. Because this guy, this guy is, is uh, he's, so, he's so irritating and he's so um, uh, defiant and he's, and he's got a heart of stone. And yet the other thing that hits him is, is but, but God showed up. So in a way, Daniel says, you know what? If God's going to show up, then I'm going to show up. And he knows that this is from the creator and the judge. It terrifies Belshazzar, but now he really needs to know. He has no choice but to hear the message. It's not an easy task. So Daniel begins. He says, now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, Mene, Techel, and Uparsin. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Uparsin. It's not Hebrew. It's not Persian or Babylonian. It's Aramaic. Again, the, the universal language of the world at the time was Aramaic. It is a less churchy uh, or less temple language than Hebrew. It's more of a common language. I don't like to say street language. Uh, but it's more a common Aramaic. And in Aramaic, they use no vowels, absolutely none. Hebrew's that way too. When you see Hebrew written out by people who know Hebrew, who can, who can uh, read and translate, they don't need the vowels. All they need to see is the consonants. They provide the vowels because they just know. But Aramaic contains no vowels. One already has to be familiar with its meaning to read it. So even though it's a universal language, and certainly Belshazzar speaks Aramaic, he probably has never seen it written before. And that's why he can't read it. There's no separation of the words. There's no separation of the, uh, of the consonants. Dr. Dukan, in his book, Secrets of Daniel, shows this is what it would look like in English if, they, if it was written in English. That's what it would look like. So a hand shows up and writes that out on the wall. I'm as flabbergasted as Belshazzar. So we've seen the message. The message has been up there ever since Daniel walked in. And Daniel says, all right, I'll give you the interpretation. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and done what? Put an end to it. You may still think that you're in power. You may still think that you're in power but God has already numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. David says that in Psalm 139. Before I even experienced a day, before I even experienced a, a moment of life, you had already numbered my entire life. Right? He's in control. He's in charge. This is what we attribute God's divinity. He's numbered your kingdom and he's put an end to it. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. And if you're wondering the difference between Uparsin and Perez, it's the form of the word. Uparsin is the, is the noun of it. Perez is the action. And the action was, was that the kingdom was divided. So it's the same word. 
It has the same root, it's just that the action is different. The interpretation is now what Perez is doing, of what Uparsin is doing. And that is your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. By the way, Uparsin, in the, in the form itself, in the root itself, is the word Persian, Pares, Pares, Persian. And we already know from the statue, who's next, right? The Medes and the who? And the Persians. So on one level, they're all measures of weight on this one level, okay? This is the inscription that was written out. On one level, it was weight. Mene, it comes from the word mina. It's about 600 grams. Tekel is a shekel. A shekel is 10 grams. And uparsin, that would be half a mina. This is a message that any street vendor would shout to inform of the weight values of whatever I've got behind the curtain. In a way, it's a street vendor telling everybody what I've got and what it's worth and what I'm about to charge you. Belshazzar would get the hint. From what we know about Belshazzar, okay, is that he was a merchant. He's reported to have been a wool merchant. Now, Daniel will get more explicit. There'll be another level of interpretation to go to, but actually what this is saying is something that Belshazzar would know, and that is, is by saying these in the weight, this is a liquidation sale. He said that the end is here, right? This is a liquidation sale. Your stock has run out, and this is what it's worth. You ever been to a liquidation sale? Everything must what? Everything must go. That's really what this first level of interpretation is. The second level is that mene derives from a root, a root meaning to count or to assign or to determine, okay? Um, it appears in chapter one, verse five, to count or assign. That word mene, it, it appears in chapter one, verse five, when it was assigned to the Hebrews what they would eat and what they would drink. That's the same word. It occurs in the Bible only in relation to who is in control. It's about control. Tekel comes from a root meaning to weigh, the language of God's judgment. If you've been judged by God, it means that we've been put in the scales of God. And we, and we are being what? We're being weighed. We're being judged. We put it uh, all in there. First Samuel 2, 3. Boast, uh, boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and with him actions are weighed. We are weighed in the judgment of God. What we know about God is how we're judged and it can be as plain as how much we weigh. Uparsin derives from a root meaning to break up or to shatter. It occurs in the context of violence and the prophets use this often in the context of violence because a lot of it was the violence that was already being done to the people and the leaders that needed to take accountability for this. The leaders that came along and said, you guys, you shepherds who are feeding yourselves off the sheep, I put you in charge of them. And you're not taking care of the poor. You're not taking care of the needy. Judgment is being pronounced upon them. Micah 3.3 3 says, you leaders who eat the flesh of my people, strip off skin. 
skin from them and break their bones and chop them up for the pot as meat with a kettle. That's this same word, uparsin. So comparing Belshazzar to merchandise being torn to pieces by foreigners, the Medes and the Persians are gonna come in and they're gonna divide your kingdom. They're gonna rip it apart amongst themselves. The only word of the inscription that's plural. Why? Because the new kingdom is a plural kingdom. Medes and Persians. Two shoulders, if you will. When we get to the zoo, it'll be a bear that's hunched up on one side. So he knows by now it's come to an end. So termination is about what this message is about. This is the interpretation. Mene, God is, oops, I went, uh, okay. Mene, number, is the end of the stock. Tekel, weighed with a lack or degeneration. And Perez, divided, idea of dissolution. Real quick, why does Daniel add another Mene? Because it makes four. The word, uh, the, the, letter, the number four is very important. We have four kingdoms. We have uh, four beasts. We have... Uh, so on and and, and so forth. He matches it all up. It is a word, a four-word description then. Earthly kingdoms won't exceed four in history. And for Boshazzar, it happens to hit home, by the way. It hits home right now. There have been four kings since Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar, which is Nabonidus. Four. Which means this is what? This is it. From 562 to 539, that very night, there have been four kings. Belshazzar is Nabonidus' regent, and there will be no more. Belshazzar understands that he's what? That he's it. That he's it. So he has a decision to make. When we're presented with the judgment of God, when we're presented with a revelation of God, we're now in the judgment seat, aren't we? will now be judged based on what we decide right here and right now. And we know what Belshazzar decides. Belshazzar gave orders. They clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that he had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom, which, by the way, in a couple hours will mean absolutely nothing because the kingdom of Babylon will now be the Persian kingdom of Cyrus. It's sad. Because when Nebuchadnezzar was at this point, he makes a decision. And what decision does he make? He makes a decision that he's going to love the living God of the Hebrews. Now, I may not get it, that I may not understand it. And I know that I'm stubborn. And I know that I'm hard of heart. And I know that God's got a lot to do with me. But after seven years of living like an animal and now I see a bit more clearly of what Daniel has been trying to teach me, Nebuchadnezzar made a decision. And what's sad is that his grandson makes the what? The opposite decision. They give the orders. He refuses to believe and he heeds Daniel's prophecy. He gives him the gifts that he promised, which is actually saying what? I'm still in charge. I'm still in charge. 
So this is how it'll end up. But I'm not 100% sure that we see exactly what is happening. I'm not 100% sure as to we see what is written, but do we read what wasn't written? God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. I'll tell you what's not written, is that we look at that and we say, that exactly was written for Belshazzar, but if you look at it a little closer, that wasn't written for Belshazzar, was it? Who was that written for? It's written for us. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God has numbered your kingdom and done what? And put an end to it. The great controversy is all about us trying to prove to the universe that we have a better way than God. And God's already done what with it? He's already judged it. He's already told everybody what he thinks of it. And he has found a way to make sure that it isn't fatal if we choose to believe that it's not. This is us, isn't it? This is us and the unpardonable sin. Has God numbered my kingdom and put an end to it? Yes. If Jesus had not found me where he found me, I don't know where I would be today. All I know is that when it was all said and done, I would not be in the kingdom. You've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your kingdom's been divided and given over. Your kingdom will keep going. People will still continue to try to find a better way. People will still feel more comfortable worshiping the beast and worshiping the Babylonian way than they will do finding it more comfortable to live a life of sacrifice and love and to worship the lamb that was slain. This is us, isn't it? We're all unpardonable, aren't we? If it weren't for Jesus, would we even have an idea or an inclination that we could be pardoned? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal life is given through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. And what's not written here is God's presence in the whole thing. I want you to notice something, that when Nebuchadnezzar, when it was time for him to make his decision, when he absolutely was on the verge of committing the unpardonable sin, and when Belshazzar is now on the verge of committing the unpardonable sin, who shows up in their life? God does. God showed up to Nebuchadnezzar and gave him a dream. God shows up to Belshazzar and actually shows him his physical presence. We try to teach that whenever we're uh, so horribly bad off that we're about to commit an unpardonable sin, in other words, if we're walking around in open defiance of God, you can't walk around in open defiance of God and expect to be able to talk to him. You can't walk around in open defiance of God and ask for his grace. These stories 
tell the absolute opposite of what God is willing to do, of what the spirit of prophecy really is. His presence in our open defiance. God's trying to show us. My presence, my willingness to love even those who openly defy me is the only shot we got. Are there still going to be people that are going to refuse that and turn around and walk away? Of course there will be. It's living proof that we were created with free will. It'll be dead proof that we were created with free will. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Moses says, today I've put before you life and death. If I were you, I'd choose life. Why? Because it's right here. You don't have to go to heaven to, to, to get it. You don't have to make your way, climb Jacob's ladder. It's, it's not in the grave. It's not in hell. You don't have to dig your way down to hell and, and, and experience some you know, time and some, uh, uh, some penance in order to get it. It's right here, his hand. I've seen it. That's what he's telling Israel. It's always been about life and about death. That was Belshazzar's decision to make. And by the way, what is the unpardonable sin? Our scripture reading, and I, and I, I, uh, I love the way that Mike read it. I gave him 10 verses to read, and man, you got through it real quick. I really, really appreciate it. But that is the entire context of the unpardonable sin. And when he begins by saying, there is a sin that cannot be pardoned, there will be a sin that cannot be pardoned, when you open that passage by saying, all manner of sin and blasphemy will be what? Will be forgiven, except blasphemy against who? The Holy Spirit. If he tells you that all manner of sin will be forgiven, then the only unpardonable sin is the one that was never asked pardon for. Belshazzar has his reasons for not asking pardon for his sin. I don't actually know what they are. I know what his actions were, but I don't know 100% what they were. You with me? Maybe he felt he couldn't be forgiven. Maybe he felt that this open defiance disqualified him. Open defiance of God, is that forgivable or not? Jesus said, all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. If it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict us of sin and of righteousness, then that is what we're to be convicted of. We either believe what he says or we don't. And when we don't believe, we've made our decision. On the night of the first communion, Jesus is sitting with the very disciple who will betray him tonight. Fact, Jesus knows it. He's not gonna change his mind. But when it came time to give him bread and give him wine of communion, did Jesus choose to? He did, didn't he? Why? Because it's the only hope we got. He was Judas's only hope. The unpardonable sin is the sin that was never asked pardon for. Because if you ask pardon for sin, what's gonna happen to you? 
you will be forgiven. So it's interesting. So from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. From whose what? From his presence. Listen to Jesus echo in that. Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. God showed up to give Belshazzar an opportunity to be forgiven of his sin and his blasphemy. Jesus said, the only shot you got at doing it, Judas, is I need to be present with you. I need to offer it to you. God showed up to offer it to Belshazzar. He just happened to choose not to. He shows up to his grandfather, and he chooses to. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But sin against the Holy Spirit Sin against the spirit that lives in people that says, don't let anybody tell you that you're too big a sinner. Don't let anybody tell you that any sin is too small that you can handle. All manner of sin and blasphemy, Jesus says, bring it to me. I don't care what it was. I'll forgive. And not only will I forgive, I'll also cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Open defiance where you and I feel that the church needs to walk away. You can't give grace to, openly, to people that are openly defiant. It cheapens it, okay? It'll give them license to sin. We make up all kinds of excuses of that there are people that you cannot give grace to. And to me, the prophecies of Daniel have been living proof that that simply is not true. Two of the most defiant people that ever lived, God shows up in his grace to be present with them, to take them up to the moment to where they decide. That's the spirit of prophecy to me. And again, it's to me is why the felts mean as much as the zoo to me in the book of Daniel. Real quick, Maury Vendon shares this uh, uh, story with us about a... Uh, a born again, um, uh, the way that he puts it, the way that uh, Elder Vendon puts it, he knows that there's not really a politically correct term. So he says, he was, he was a biker, okay? He was a biker gang dude, okay? This biker gang dude, okay? I, I, I just like, love the way that he describes it. And he went to a George Vandeman evangelistic series and he was converted, he was born again. And he was convinced after a few weeks of being in this church that he wanted to proclaim the gospel. So there were a couple of members of his church that sends him to La Sierra. Go to La Sierra, study theology. I think you'd make a great pastor. So he pulls into La Sierra on his bike with no sleeves and looking exactly the way you're picturing right now. And he's trying to live the life. And then the rules that were in the church that he had to live by were one thing. Now he's on this school and in this campus and the rules of the dorm. And he goes, oh, I can't do it. I cannot do it. I simply cannot live this life. And he's had it. So he gets up from his dorm room one night at about 11 o'clock and he walks across the field. That's back when Riverside had a whole lot of fields. There are no fields in Riverside anymore. But there were huge lots of fields. And he stood on an irrigation pipe and he openly defied God. He 
openly just opened up on him, telling him that he could take this life and hang it in his ear because I've never been more frustrated. I've never been more condemned. I've never felt more judged. And I've had it. And he tells the story, he says, as he was doing that, the cows actually got up from the field and they began to wander over to the irrigation pipe. And by the time he was finished, he had an entire audience of cows that were kind of looking at him like this. He went back to his room completely unburdened. Completely unburdened. He said, I never felt more free. Decided he was gonna lay down, take a nap, wake up in the morning, hop on his bike, and leave this church in the dust. Went about an hour and a half later. He woke up to the softest, warmest, glowing presence of God in that room. He said, after what I said to him, he can still show up like that. It's a love I don't understand, but it's one I'm no longer going to deny. Yeah, we have Belshazzar's and we have Nebuchadnezzar's. We have biker gang dudes. And then we have us. We can't give what we don't have. If you don't feel you can pardon somebody, then we have to ask ourselves, where in my life have I not asked for pardon? What am I still willing to hold on to? But a love like that I can no longer deny. I see that love in Daniel. I hope you see it too. Again, that's why I think we should spend time in the felts before we rush to the zoo. We're almost to the zoo, it's okay. Couple more felts, all right? Thank you all for a little extra time today. 